Hey folks, it's your monthly reminder that this summer, CrimeCon, in partnership with CBS Reality, is back in London on Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th of June, and yours truly will be there with bells on. The Detective Dogs will be back, and I can't wait to see them. And guests include a host of professionals working in all parts of the criminal justice system, researchers on everything from psychology to forensics, and the creators of amazing documentaries. There are even a few speakers who found themselves on the wrong side of the law. Podcast Row is even bigger and better this year, too. All of your favorites from home and abroad will be there. Nicola Talent, crime reporter and host of Crime World, is joining us. And I'm excited to meet Robin from The Trail Went Cold and hang out again with the lads from Generation Y, Esther from Once Upon a Crime, the lovely folks at They Walk Among Us, and Paul from The True Crime Enthusiast. There will be podcast live shows and I'll be hosting a roundtable discussion with a few of my pod friends, talking shop and behind the scenes. Plus, the immersive CSI experience this year sounds amazing. No spoilers, but I am ready for it. I'm so excited to have been invited back to CrimeCon again and I hope I'll get to see you there. Limited tickets are available now and make sure to use the code MENSREA for your special 10% discount and to let CrimeCon know I sent you. To get your tickets or for more information, head to crimecom.co.uk. Just a quick content warning before we begin today. This episode contains references to violence and sexual assault of children. You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Marie Buckley. Clonroach is a tiny village in Wexford, halfway between Enniscorthy and New Ross in the sunny southeast. The village is arranged along a small stretch of road, just a few shops, a post office and two pubs. There are a number of houses on that main street and a row of artisan cottages in a cul-de-sac jutting out from the main road. Very little has changed there over the years. A new, short row of modern semi-detached homes has been recently added. The old well on the main street has been cleaned up and made a feature of. Some of the buildings have been updated. But all in all, it's a place that has retained its rural village feel, and the names on the shops are still ones that go back generations in the locale. But small, close-knit communities are not immune to tragedy, and Clenroach is no exception to that. Monday, the 9th of November, 1970, was a busy day in Clenroach. There were two events taking place that evening, a bingo night held about six miles outside the village and a GAA meeting held at the village hall. A bus was put on to bring people out to the bingo. There was much activity on the main street, men coming and going from work or popping into the pubs for an evening pint. Kids were out on the street too. The village was so small that that main street was their playground and many of the kids were related, so it was only natural that there was coming and going between their various nearby homes. Nine-year-old Marcella Mary Buckley, better known as Marie, was one of these children. Marie was born on the 9th of July, 1961, and she was the eldest in her family. The Buckleys lived in the main street in Clonroach. Her father, Con, owned a garage, and her mother, Kathleen, was a primary school teacher. They lived just a few doors down from their cousins, the Cummins. Marie had been out and about in Clonroach with one of her cousins on the evening of the 9th. Between their games, she was in search of something. There was a trend at the time among the kids to play a prank on one another. They'd let the air out of one another's bike tyres. The Evening Herald noted that this was a widespread sport, but whereas in Dublin they'd simply let the air out, in Clonroach, it appeared the kids went further and would remove the entire valve from the tyre. And so it was on the evening of the 9th of November, Marie discovered that the valves from her bike were missing, taken while she was visiting at a friend's house. 
Marie was understandably upset when she discovered that the valves were gone, especially as she'd only had her bike a month or so at that point. And so for the next few hours, Marie was on the lookout for either her valves or for the kids who had taken them. People came and went all evening into the two pubs in the village, various shops and garages, and a few businesses which were open a little late. Marie's parents became worried when she didn't return home when she was supposed to for her bedtime at 9pm. They began asking around for her as it was highly unusual for her to not let them know where she was, with the first port of call being to the cousin's house and other neighbours with kids. Not long after, when there was no sign of Marie, a local Garda, Garda Quigley, began an organised search based out of the village hall. Then, at about 20 minutes past midnight, Marie's body was discovered by James Kyo as he was searching Doyle's field with a flashlight. He was so shocked he let out a roar, unable to do anything more than yell out, alerting the other searchers that something was wrong. Kyo's shout did indeed alert the other searchers and they made their way into the field. After the local Garda confirmed that Marie was dead and that her body was cold, the scene was preserved for expert examination to take place. A number of hours later, Assistant State Pathologist Dr Raymond O'Neill arrived on the scene and he examined the young girl's body where she lay on the ground. He noted that she was fully clothed and positioned on her back. Her jumper and vest were rucked up from the waist, as if Marie had at one point been pulled across the ground. None of her underclothes appeared to have been interfered with, but the zip on the fly of her trousers was undone. The pathologist noted friction marks on Marie's neck, and she had suffered extensive injuries, especially to her head. Dr O'Neill observed bloodstains on Marie's face and neck on the left side, but there was no sign of this vicious assault apparent on the ground where she lay, meaning it was likely that the assault Marie endured had occurred elsewhere. A post-mortem was performed later that day. The injuries to Marie's head was described as very severe, made up of three wide lacerations caused by an instrument or weapon which had effectively destroyed that side of Marie's skull. The injuries had occurred as Marie lay on the ground, around the time of her death. Despite the catastrophic nature of these head injuries, Dr O'Neill concluded that Marie's cause of death had actually been asphyxia. The pathologist thought that the friction marks on her neck had been caused by the top of Marie's jumper being pulled against her neck. This pressure to the neck had been applied when Marie was alive, interrupting her airflow and leaving the signs of asphyxia. During the post-mortem, Dr O'Neill also noted injuries to Marie's rectum having occurred while the girl lay in a recumbent position close to the time of death, and there was bruising to her upper thighs, indicating that the initial assault on the nine-year-old had been sexual in nature. While medical investigations were ongoing, Gardi from the Technical Bureau and senior members from other districts were sent to assist local Gardi with their investigation. The night of the 9th and 10th of November had been rainy and damp, meaning that there was little in terms of forensic evidence that could be collected from Doyle's field. But various samples were collected and the field itself was scoured for any indication of who had put Marie out there. Gardy also began the process of knocking on every door in the small village in order to ascertain the movements of every resident on the night in question. With those statements taken, detectives were able to map out who was where and when, and look for inconsistencies in the accounts that had been given to them, or to establish whether there had been any strangers in Clonroach around the time of Marie's killing. This exercise proved fruitful. On Monday the 7th of December 1970, 57-year-old William Whitmore, who went by Terry, appeared at a special sitting of the district court held in Wexford Garda Station. Whitmore was married and lived on the main street in Clonroach. He was a civil bills officer in the village and also repaired and sold bikes. Whitmore was charged with the murder of Marie Buckley and was remanded in custody. William Terry Whitmore faced trial in July of 1971, appearing before Mr Justice John Kenny at the Central Criminal Court sitting in Green Street in Dublin. 
The jury was told that they would hear from 121 witnesses and the proceeding would take up to three weeks. Prosecuting on behalf of the state were senior counsels John Lovett Dolan and Noel MacDonald. Mr. Kevin Lynch, senior counsel, and David Sheehy were defending. Terry Whitmore pleaded not guilty. Mr. MacDonald gave the opening statement, telling the jury that Marie was last seen on the 9th of November 1970 at about 9pm. A local man, James Kyo, had been at Collins Pub on the main street that evening, but had stepped out at 9pm. The jury would hear that, as he stood on the footpath, Mr. Kyo had seen Marie Buckley and Terry Whitmore walk towards Whitmore's house, and the defendant had closed the gate after them. Marie's body was found just a few hours later, at about 20 minutes past midnight. The nine-year-old had been left in an area known as Doyle's Field, which was located 40 yards behind the Whitmore house, with which it shared a hedge boundary. The prosecutor went on to say that this had been a, quote, ghastly, brutal murder, and that the motive in the case appeared to have been sexual in nature. Mr. MacDonald argued that when Marie yelled during the course of the assault on her, she was silenced by strangling, then beaten to ensure that no one could be told what had happened before being dragged to the field in an attempt to cover up the crimes. Mr. MacDonald asserted that this had been done by the defendant, Terry Whitmore. The court would also hear that after the attack and killing of Marie, certain items of clothing belonging to the defendant had disappeared. Whitmore had told Gardie that he'd burned them two weeks prior to Marie's death in the backyard of his home. But when the yard was later searched for remains of the clothes, nothing was found. Terry Whitmore made a voluntary statement on the 12th of November and counsel for the prosecution argued that Whitmore had lied in this statement a number of times, particularly when he placed himself in the pub at the time the crime was committed in order to give himself an alibi. Whitmore had told Gardie that he'd gone to Cullen's pub at 10 to 9 and had spoken to a man called Mr. Wickham on arrival but Mr. Wickham had also given a statement to the Gardee in which he said he had not been in the pub that night at all, nor even in Clonroach. Mr. MacDonald described the Garda investigation as a series of interviews with statements taken from basically everyone who had been in Clonroach on the night of Marie's death. The only person whose statement did not match up with the others was that of the defendant, Terry Whitmore. Further, MacDonald argued that there was evidence that Whitmore had suffered the effects of a guilty mind after Marie's death. On November 17th, in a shed belonging to the Franklin family of Clunroach, Whitmore had slit his own throat. He was treated in hospital for his injuries, and after his release, he was charged with murder. In response, he had said simply, quote, I know nothing about it. This episode is sponsored in part by StoryWorth. Me and my dad were super close. He was a great man for a story, and every now and again he would come out with a gem that I'd never heard before. It definitely makes you wonder what else you never heard about. That's why I absolutely love StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your dad or father figure connect through sharing stories and memories and preserves them for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails your dad or loved one a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought of, like what's one of your fondest childhood memories or have you ever feared for your life? I can only imagine the kinds of stories my dad would have come up with. They probably would have required a bit of fact-checking, but I definitely would have treasured whatever he had come up with for us. With StoryWorth, after a year, they compile all those questions and stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book the whole family can share for generations. Give all the fathers in your life a meaningful gift you can both cherish for years to come. StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you can save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash Rhea. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash R-E-A to save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash Rhea.
Evidence in the case against Terry Whitmore began when the court was shown a map prepared by Detective Garda Kieran Connolly. This depicted the area where Marie's body was found, which was 124 feet from the back of the Whitmore house. Another map showed the Whitmore's home and yard, and the 150-yard distance between the Buckley and Whitmore houses. The Garda was then cross-examined, and he acknowledged that anyone in Cullen's public house, which was adjacent to the Whitmore home, would have had clear access to the field where Marie had been found. Garda Connolly also confirmed that there were other places where the field might be accessed too. Sergeant Noonan from the Garda Technical Bureau told the court that on the 10th of November he had taken a number of photographs of the scene and of Marie Buckley's body. The pictures were then shown to the jury. The sergeant pointed out a piece of hedging that was caught in the jumper Marie had been wearing, as well as a small leaf that was present at the corner of her mouth. A thistle had been caught between her shoulder blades and a small clump of burdock was stuck to her blouse at the small of her back. The sergeant had also sent a number of items taken from the scene for further examination. Mud from Marie's shoes, a piece of stick and a leaf were included, as well as samples of Marie's hair and her clothes. After this, 11-year-old Celine Cummins, one of Marie's cousins and neighbours, described how she and her sister were watching the TV show The Partridge Family when Marie came into the house on the night she died. The three girls sat and watched the show. After Marie had gone back outside and Marie's brother Ned had brought Marie's bike from the witness's house back to the Buckleys. By that stage, the bike had two flat tyres and the valves were missing. Celine said she and Marie had borrowed Ned's bike and gone for a spin, stopping first at Tom Doyle's house and asking his wife if she knew whether Mr. Doyle had any valves for bike tyres. After cycling around for a while, the girls headed to Murphy's pub, where they ordered soft drinks from Molly Murphy. Celine described for the court how she and Marie sat at a table sipping their soft drinks and pretending to be grown-ups, tourists, visiting the village. When they finished their drinks, the cousins left the pub and had gone their separate ways. Celine told the court that she thought Marie had gone home, and she'd called in to see various relatives along the main street that night at homes and businesses, and had looked out for Marie, but didn't see her. Celine thought that after this toing and froing, she had gone home to watch Hawaii Five-O, and she and her sister Aileen did some sewing for school. She recalled that when the news was on, her father came in. Then, some time later, her uncle Con came in looking for Marie. Celine said she and her mum had gone to McLaughlin's to see if Marie was there, and by that time there were a good few people out looking for Marie on the street. Eventually, Celine went home. She testified that the TV was off at that stage as it was late, and as she stood in the hall with Aileen, they heard that Marie had been found. Celine recalled that her uncle Con was very upset. The 11-year-old was briefly cross-examined by Mr. Kevin Lynch. She said that she'd been told that two boys, Tom Kyo and Tom Doyle, had taken the valves from Marie's bike, and the girls had gone looking for Tom Doyle's bike, but they hadn't found it. After hearing from Celine Cummins, two employees of RTE appeared with records which confirmed which programmes aired, along with their start and finish times, on the evening of the 9th of November. This information clarified various timelines provided by witnesses in the case who had placed themselves at different locations at certain times by reference to the programs that aired that night, like The Partridge Family, Hawaii Five-O, and The Evening News. Then Andrew Mahan, who was 13 and lived in the villas in Clonroach, took to the stand. On the night Marie died, he and a girl had found Marie's bike parked outside the shop, owned by the Cummins. They had taken the valves. Marie had been in the shop at the time. Andrew told the court on cross that he'd spoken to Marie and told her that Tom Doyle had taken the valves and hidden them in a yard. Marie's little brother Ned, aged eight and a half, briefly appeared then to tell the court that in the past he had gone to Terry Whitmore's to get new valves for his bike, and Ned was followed on the stand by Aileen Cummins, aged twelve and a half, who recalled that she had seen Marie go to the defendants to get a bike valve, but she couldn't be sure when this had happened. 
Next to testify were Detective Garda John McCarthy, who had found a bike valve hidden in Tom Doyle's yard, and Detective John O'Leary, who had said he had located another on the road in Clonroach. Evidence concluded that day when Teresa Buckley, Marie's aunt, told the court that she had seen Marie and Celine Cummins riding on a bike, with Marie up on the crossbar. She'd seen Marie later, by herself, holding onto her bike at Cummins' shop. The witness had noticed nothing unusual. Teresa said this could not have been later than half past eight. The following morning, Francis Carthy, who lived in the villa's Clonroach, told the court that he had spoken to Terry Whitmore on the 10th of November outside the defendant's house, the day after Marie had been found dead. Mr. Carthy had commented that it was an awful thing that had happened, referencing Marie's killing, and Whitmore had agreed. According to the witness, Whitmore mentioned that he'd been in Cullen's pub the previous night with a friend at 9pm and that he'd first gone to the pub with another man at around 8pm. On cross-examination by Mr Lynch of the defence, Carthy said it was an ordinary sort of conversation and that everyone in the small village was talking about the events of the night before and how awful it was. It was Mr. Carthy's recollection that Whitmore said to him he'd only heard Marie was missing when his wife Dolly came in that evening and said that there was a group of people out looking for the girl. Eileen Buckley, who ran a shop in Clonroach, also appeared on the stand that day and explained that Marie was her niece and often came into the shop. Marie had been into her at about half past four on the day she went missing and Eileen had not seen her again after this. Elizabeth Kavanagh told the court that on the 9th of November, she had walked with another woman to the bus to go to Bingo. She had seen Marie Buckley on this journey at about 25 to 8. Mrs Kavanagh didn't speak to the girl, but was sure it was Marie by her clothes. Molly Murphy, who owned the Clonroach Arms, also known as Murphy's Pub, recalled seeing Marie and Celine that evening and having served them two bottles of minerals while the girls pretended to be grown-ups. Celine had popped her head in again later that evening, but she hadn't come in. As far as Molly could remember, Richard Sinish had been in the bar at the time. A number of men had come into the bar that evening, including some who were making their way back to New Ross after spending the evening at the Greyhound Racing in Enniscorthy. A local man, Michael Kyo, had been in the Clonroach Arms when the girls were there. He recognised them as either the kids of the Cumminses or Buckleys, but he didn't know which. He left the bar and returned home in time to hear the RTE announcer introduce Hawaii Five O. Anne Kinsella had made arrangements with Dolly Whitmore and another woman to go out to the bingo in Bree that night and she'd gone to the Whitmore house to collect Dolly for the walk to the bus. Thomas Kyo and Terry Whitmore had been inside. When Anne and Dolly left the house, Terry had come to the door and called his wife back and she'd returned to the witness at the gate just a minute or so later. Mrs Kinsella recalled that Terry had been wearing what she described as black guard's trousers and a short, dark, striped jacket which had leather on the elbows and wrists. The bus left Clonroach no later than five past eight and got back to Clonroach between eleven and half past. The next day, Mrs Kinsella was walking along the street just near to the butcher shop and she came across Terry. They didn't stop to speak. The witness recalled that the defendant was wearing a grey-coloured striped suit at the time, and it wasn't what he'd been wearing the night before. On the few occasions after the ninth that Mrs Kinsella said she saw Whitmore, she had not noted him wearing the clothes that he had worn on the night Marie went missing and was found dead. On cross, Mrs Kinsella admitted that she was in a rush on the night of the 9th as she had heard that the bus was going to be leaving Clonroach a little earlier than usual. Because of this, she had not been in the Whitmore house for more than a minute. Mrs Kinsella was asked by Mr Lynch defending why it was that she had taken, quote, terrible particular notice of what Terry Whitmore had worn in that short time. Mrs Kinsella said that the clothes Whitmore wore on the 9th were the clothes he always wore, and she was sure that Mr Whitmore had been in the house. Next, Anastasia Condon told the court that she had called into Cullen's public house on November 9th at around half past nine as she drove home from Enniscorthy. She bought some drink there to take away, and Mrs Cullen had packaged these up. 
Then Ms. Condon had gone to Mrs. Green's shop and bought other items before going home. When the Condons got in, the news was on the television. Mrs. Condon said she had been in Cullen's pub for only about ten minutes and said that she did not know the accused very well. On Thursday the 8th of July, Marie's father, Con Buckley, stood to give evidence. Con said that he and his wife Kathleen had been married since 1960 and they had five children together. Marie was their eldest and was very close with her cousins Aileen and Celine Cummins, who lived in Clunroach as well. Marie also palled around with the other kids in the village. On the morning of the 9th of November, Kathleen had brought Marie to school and Con had next seen his eldest at about 4pm at his garage. Marie said that there was something wrong with the mudguard on her bike, but the witness hadn't had time to look after it in that moment. Whatever the matter was, Marie had been able to cycle off and away from the shop. Con said that later that afternoon he had gone into Enniscorthy with the family and when he returned to Clonroach he had had his tea and gone back to work at the garage. Con didn't think he'd seen Marie after having his evening meal. Later that night, when Marie had not been seen for a while, Mr. Buckley said that they had started up a search. When she was eventually found, Con had been told that Marie was dead. On cross-examination, Mr. Buckley confirmed that he had bought bikes from Terry Whitmore for his two eldest kids some months before Marie's death. After this, Marie's mother, Kathleen Buckley, gave testimony. On the day of Marie's death, Kathleen said she had taken her eldest child to school and collected her at about 3pm as usual. That afternoon, she and Con had gone to Enniscorthy with the kids as they had some business to do in the larger town. At a quarter past six, they'd arrived back home and they'd all had their tea together. Not long after seven, Marie went into the village to call into her cousins, the Cummins. Kathleen could not recall whether Marie had taken her bike with her, but the girl was back and forth to the house for the next few hours. She'd asked her mother for money to buy a bottle of orange and Kathleen had given her a pound coin. That was at about half past eight. Marie usually went to bed at 9pm and was to be back in the house by that time. Kathleen described Marie's clothing that day and also said she'd watched Hawaii Five-0 and had done some sewing in front of the TV. Then Con had returned home from the garage at around 10pm. Marie was not home and a search for her was started. Next to appear before the court was John Rockford. He said he had known the defendant all his life and had been at the Whitmore's house on the 9th. There, he had seen Mrs. Whitmore and had spoken with her before leaving. He returned later at about a quarter past seven and Terry, his wife, and Tom Kyo had been there. Mr. Rockford asked the defendant if he wanted a drink and the two left for Cullen's pub, which was next door. They had a pint and then both left to go to their respective homes. Mr. Rockford said that he'd gotten in at around 8pm and shortly after this he had gone to bed. He'd only found out that Marie had gone missing the next morning. Then the court heard from Thomas Keogh. He told the court he had been in Terry Whitmore's house the day that Marie had gone missing and he'd spoken with the defendant at various points over the following days. Thomas said he was in the Whitmore's house at about half past seven on the night of the 9th and Terry and his wife Dolly were also present. According to the witness, at five to eight, Whitmore had left with a friend for a drink. Then Mrs. Whitmore had gone out to go to bingo. Thomas recalled that while alone in the house, he had had a short nap and when he woke at about 8.25, he said goodnight to Terry Whitmore, who had arrived back in that time. Thomas had left then to be at the GAA meeting for a quarter past nine and he'd stayed there until a quarter to eleven. After this, he and three friends went to Molly Murphy's pub where he had two drinks. The group left near to closing time. While in the pub, Mr. Kyo recalled that he had heard someone make a comment about Marie being missing and he had said something to the effect of he was sure she'd turn up. When she hadn't been found, Thomas had joined in the search for her and later he heard that she had been found dead with cuts to her head. Mr. Kyo said he had not seen Marie at all that night. The witness told the court that he had known Terry Whitmore since he was in school and he was often in the defendant's company. 
In the days after Marie's death, the two had had a number of occasions to speak and had referenced the death of Marie Buckley. The day after Marie's death, the witness said that the two had spoken, and when Thomas had pointed towards where Marie had been found, Whitmore had gone pale. A few days later, Thomas Keogh was again speaking with the defendant when Whitmore asked what time he'd left the house on the 9th. Whitmore said he thought he'd left at 5 to 9 or 9 o'clock. Keogh told Whitmore he had no idea what the defendant had done or when. Whitmore then told him not to worry, explaining he was only checking his times. During the same interaction, Keogh testified that he thought Whitmore was very upset over police being at the back of his garden, pointing to a plastic sheet that had been used to cover a portion of the hedge, and the defendant commented that it was a terrible thing after happening so close to his house. Keogh had said that Whitmore shouldn't worry, that he couldn't be found guilty if he was innocent. Whitmore went on to talk about a murder trial that had occurred recently in Cork, but Keogh hadn't known what Whitmore was referring to. Then, on the morning of the 15th of November, Thomas Keogh spoke to Whitmore again, who he described as being keyed up and very hoarse-sounding. Whitmore was upset about the times that had been given to Gardee, saying that the time Thomas Keogh had given was wrong, and that the same went for Mrs Cullen from the pub. Whitmore was angry with her and said he wouldn't ever be going back to that pub again. A few days later, the witness had had lunch in the Whitmore house and Thomas told the court that the defendant said he had spoken to a local peace commissioner and that he knew police had a warrant to search the Whitmore house. The defendant had commented, quote, I don't know what way I'm feeling at all. I'm not well at all. Whitmore also said he wouldn't mind the guard a search, only he was worried for his wife. Kyo had tried to calm him, to no avail. The witness recalled that Whitmore had commented, quote, Wasn't it terrible that there were people in the village who would kill a girl and get him blamed for it? At this, Mr. Kyo had suggested to Whitmore that he go and see the doctor. Mr. Kyo told the court that later that evening, at about 20 past eight, he'd been walking home and had just got inside when he heard a scream, which sounded like a woman's or a girl's. Seconds later, there was another, and Thomas said he ran back out into the street. Guards were out running near the barracks, and Mrs. Cullen ran down the road towards him. Kyo headed to Whitmore's gate, where Mrs. Cullen had come from, and saw Terry Whitmore with his hands on his neck, which was also bloody. Mrs. Whitmore was helped to lie down on the ground as she was screaming in distress. While on the stand, Kyo also commented on the difference he had noticed in the defendant's behaviour after Marie's killing and that it was distinct from how the rest of the community had reacted. Mr. Kyo said, quote, All the villagers knew that they would be questioned after the murder and they were settling among each other about the times and where they were. From the time he heard of the murder, he was never the same again. He was fidgety. On the 9th of July, Friday, Garda Michael Nyland from the Garda Technical Bureau told the court that he had taken mud samples from Marie's shoes while she lay in situ in Doyle's field, as well as some hedging, a leaf and some weeds found on Marie's body. He had searched the perimeter of the field and the hedge that ran along the border of the field and the Whitmore's backyard. This took about six hours and Garda Nyland said he had been very careful and thorough. He agreed with the defence that he was a, quote, expert on weeds, but he said that there could have been weeds in the grass that he didn't see. Garden Island also gathered two blood samples from the garage or shed at the home of Mr. Franklin in Clonroach on November 18th, and one more from the garden of that house. Then James Keogh appeared on the stand. He was a local gravedigger in Clonroach and had participated in the search for Marie on the night of the 9th of November. That evening, he'd gone to Cullen's pub after his supper. At about 9pm, James Keogh said he was standing outside the pub when he saw Terry Whitmore next door at his own gate. Mr Keogh said that Marie Buckley was with the defendant. The defendant and Marie had then headed towards Whitmore's front door and Terry had closed the front garden gate behind them. Mr Keogh didn't notice whether Marie had her bike with her or not. Not long after 11pm, both of Marie's parents had knocked at James Kyo's looking for their eldest child. The witness began to help in the search efforts. Mr Kyo described for the court how he had decided to search out in Doyle's field that night and had spotted Marie lying in the grass.
James said he'd gone over to the girl, got down on his knees and said, quote, get up and come along with me. But Marie hadn't stirred and Mr. Kyo said he'd turned the girl over only to discover that the nine-year-old was dead. Mr. Kyo was then questioned by Kevin Lynch for Whitmore's defence and agreed that he'd had six to eight bottles of stout before going home for his tea that night and then another six or eight drinks afterwards before he had come out of the pub at around nine o'clock when he saw Mr. Whitmore on the path. James Kyo further admitted that he was not wearing his glasses at that moment, but also explained to the defence counsel that his glasses were for reading and so would have been little use to him outside the pub that night anyway. The witness stated that he had not thought of going to Whitmore's house to ask after Marie that evening while the search was ongoing, or even of mentioning having seen Marie with Terry Whitmore to her family. He denied the suggestions put to him by the barrister that this omission had been because James had not in fact seen Marie with the defendant that night. Next on the stand was Elizabeth Cullen, who ran Cullen's Pub in Clonroach. She explained that she and her husband lived above the pub, and the Whitmores lived next door to their premises. On the evening of the 9th of November, at around tea time, she had lit the fire in their TV lounge and went to the bar to let her husband take a break and have his meal. Mrs. Cullen said that the defendant was in the bar with John Rockford. Whitmore left the pub for a while and then came back. Mrs. Cullen wasn't able to say what times this had happened, nor was she sure what time Whitmore had finally left the bar that night, except that she was certain he hadn't been there at closing. James Cullen, the previous witness's husband, appeared next. Mr. Cullen's recollection was that Terry Whitmore had come in sometime after 7pm with John Rockford and the two men had had one drink. They left at about half past seven or twenty to eight. After eight, Mr. Cullen had left the bar and gone to his own sitting room where he watched the news. He'd stayed there until the bar closed. Brendan Kidd said he'd seen Terry Whitmore come out of Cullen's pub at about seven minutes past ten on the night of the ninth. He'd seen the defendant again on the fifteenth outside the same pub. And according to the witness, Whitmore had said to him, quote, You made a fucking statement about me. However, Mr. Kidd said this was a surprise as he had not yet made a statement to Gardee. Whitmore was pale and referred to the murder, but Brendan couldn't recall exactly what was said. Whitmore was hoarse, had difficulty speaking, and seemed distressed. Later, Brendan would learn that the day before, the defendant had spent the day in the Garda barracks. James Wickham testified that he had met the defendant in Cullen's pub on the 11th of November, and Whitmore had opened their conversation with a mention of the terrible thing that had happened, Marie's death. Whitmore had then told him Tom Kyo had been at his house until a quarter past eight, when he left for the GAA meeting. Whitmore said he'd had to go out after Kyo to close the garden gate and had then stood talking to Dick Redmond on the main street. While there, the defendant said he'd seen Marie Buckley heading down the road on a bike. Whitmore said he'd gone back inside to wait for Dolly to come home from the bingo, but at around a quarter past nine, he'd decided to go to the pub for a drink and he'd stayed there until closing. Mr. Wickham said he was sure of what had been said during this conversation and commented, quote, everybody was talking about the killing at the time. So he'd not been surprised when the defendant brought it up. Mr. Wickham told the court that he had not been in Cullen's pub on the night of Marie's death. Patrick Harris saw the defendant at 10 to 10 at Cullen's and Lawrence Doyle had been on the way to the pub that evening when he'd seen Whitmore at his gate. He'd seen him later at Cullen's too. The defendant left some time before Mr. Doyle at about ten past eleven. Patrick Sutton told the court that he'd known Terry Whitmore since they were children. They had gone to school together. He'd seen the defendant entering Cullen's pub on the 9th of November at ten to ten, a time he was able to fix as he'd seen a woman he did not know enter the pub some twenty minutes before. That woman was later identified to him as Mrs. Anastasia Condon. After this, Garda Raymond quickly gave evidence that while he was organising the search for Marie Buckley at the village hall, he'd heard a scream. Garda quickly moved towards the sound and shone his flashlight into Doyle's field. He then saw Marie's body. Garda quickly put the time at 25 minutes past 12. 
Marie was pronounced dead at 1am by a local doctor, Dr. Daly. The trial continued after the weekend on Monday the 13th of July with evidence from Mr. William Kinsella. He had been talking with a neighbour, Thomas Franklin, just after 9pm on the 9th when he heard two screams in quick succession. Mr. Kinsella said the screams sounded as if they were that of a child in pain. Both men had heard the yell at the same time. Anne Doyle had been working in Cullen's pub on the 9th of November. Days later, Whitmore had approached her and said Gardy were questioning him about a statement that had been made. Whitmore said he'd been in Cullen's earlier on the night and that he'd come into the pub for a second time a few minutes past nine. Ms Doyle told the court that Whitmore had the impression from Garda questioning that he was going to be arrested in the matter and that Whitmore was upset about this. Whitmore also complained about Gardy maintaining a presence in the field and that they still had a tarp over the hedge at the back of his house. John Dempsey had had a very similar conversation with the accused in Cullen's pub, this time on the day of Marie's funeral, and Seamus Joyce recalled seeing the defendant at Cullen's when he entered there at a quarter past nine on the 12th of November. Again, Whitmore was talking about the murder and said that if he knew who did it, he'd give them a boot. Next to the stand was George Askins, a law clerk from a solicitor's firm in Enniscorthy. Whitmore had entered his workplace on the 11th of November and the two had begun talking. Whitmore brought up Marie's murder, saying the village was full of guards, squad cars and searchlights, and they had questioned every man, woman and child in Clonroach. The defendant had then asked if the witness thought a body would show fingerprints, and Mr. Askins told him that it would not and went on to describe what sort of surfaces fingerprints could be found on. Terry Whitmore had called into the office again on Wednesday the 16th of November and revealed to Mr. Askins, quote, The guardie gave me an awful grueling since I saw you last. And he went on to explain that he, the defendant, had been brought into the station at 10am and kept there until 1am. Whitmore said that the 15 hours of near-continuous questioning had torn his throat, which explained why the witness noted that he was hoarse-sounding. Mr. Askins further recalled that Whitmore had told him he was worried about his wife Dolly's state of health, and he feared she might have a nervous breakdown because of his questioning and the searches so near to his house. In fact, Whitmore continued, the guardie had been granted a warrant to search the house itself, even though Whitmore had assured them that they were free to come and go as they pleased from his home. Another clerk from the same office, Patrick Lynch, took to the stand and outlined how Whitmore had told him that Gardy had asked during their interviews with him if he had seen Marie Buckley on the evening of her death. Whitmore had said he had not, but Gardy had told him Marie had been seen going into his house. To that, Whitmore had told police to produce the person who had made that accusation. He was annoyed because Marie had done no such thing, he said. After this, Garda James Ryan gave evidence and said he had taken a statement from the defendant on the 12th of November the previous year. The defendant had told him that the local kids often played in Doyle's field, especially when the weather was good, but Whitmore had not noticed any of them out there on the 9th of November. He also said that he often sorted out Marie's bike and that of young Paddy Doyle, but he had not had Marie in about the bike for about a month or so. In that statement, Whitmore also outlined his movements for the Gardaí from the 9th of November. He said that he had had his tea and then gone with John Rockford to Cullen's. They'd gone back to the Whitmore home and arrived back at 20 to 8 as Dolly headed out to catch her bus. Tom Kyo was inside taking a nap until Whitmore woke him and sent him off to the GAA meeting at half eight. Whitmore had gone out after Kyo to close the front gate and as he was out there, the defendant told Gardy that he saw Tom Kyo and Richie Blackburn talking outside Cullen's. He'd not noticed anyone else on the street at that time and he had not seen Marie Buckley that evening. Whitmore said he'd stayed at home for another 15 minutes or so before going out again and having another drink at Cullen's. This would have been at about 9pm. On his short trip to the pub, he had seen Garda Quigley and Jackie Green talking. He got home at about 10.45 and went up to bed 25 minutes later. Dolly had come in shortly after and they'd heard a commotion outside, followed by yells. He thought the voice he heard was that of Garda Quigley, but he hadn't investigated what was going on. 
Next on the stand was Garda Thomas Ford, who had come down to Clonroach from Rath Drum in order to assist in the investigation into Marie's killing. He was staying at the Whitmore house during this time. Garda Ford told the court that on the Wednesday after Marie's death, John Rockford had come into the house and brought up Marie's murder in conversation with Whitmore. Garda Ford said he had overheard the defendant comment that a local must be responsible and that, quote, we would want to have our times right when the guards come. Garda Ford had not discussed the investigation directly with Whitmore. Garda Frank Arrigan had also been brought down to Clonroach for the investigation and had stayed at the Whitmore house from Wednesday to Friday, the week after Marie's murder. Throughout his stay at the house, Garda Arrigan noted that Whitmore wore a grey suit and leather shoes. Garda Arrigan said that the defendant's demeanour was cool and unruffled outwardly, but he was restless and fidgety in that time, and he didn't stay still for very long at any point. The Garda told the court that on Friday the 13th of November he had noticed some drops of blood on the wall just below a lamp depicting the Sacred Heart. He had pointed this out to Whitmore. The Garda examined the walls in the toilet and found another blood spot. After this, the court heard from Patrick Donahue, a local forester, who said he'd been sitting in his car near the Whitmore house on the 17th of November when he saw the defendant and his wife outside their door. Mrs. Whitmore was screaming, and so he got out of his car to see what was the matter. As Mr. Donahue approached, he could see a cut to Terry Whitmore's throat. Whitmore was making his way out to the gate but appeared to be struggling and was holding on to the railing. Mr. Donahue alerted the guardee in the nearby barracks. John Green, the local grocer in Clonroach, also described what he had seen on the evening of the 17th of November. He was in his shop when sometime after half past eight he had heard screams and went out onto the street. As he was crossing over, Mr. Green said he'd noticed the defendant at his own garden gate. Again, the witness said Whitmore was struggling to move around and Whitmore had reached out to Mr. Green and grabbed his arm. Mr. Green asked him what was wrong and in response, Whitmore had said, quote, I have the job, where is she? Mr. Green didn't know what Whitmore had meant by this, but held on to the defendant and helped him to stand while they waited for Gardy to arrive. Whitmore's throat was described as being open and bleeding. Distressingly, Green told the court, quote, It was slashed and I could see inside. Thomas Franklin told the court that he had visited Mr. Whitmore in hospital after this incident on the 24th of November. He'd asked Terry why he had done this to himself and Whitmore was alleged to have responded, quote, Why does many a man do it? On Wednesday the 14th of July 1971, the court heard from Garda Thomas Byrne, who said that at about 10 to 9 on the 17th of November, he had been alerted that there was an incident at the Whitmore's house. He left the barracks and ran up the main street where he found the defendant standing at the railings outside his home. Whitmore had hold of the railing but was stooped over with one hand on his knee. Garda Byrne noticed there was blood on Whitmore's hands and that there was a wound to Whitmore's neck. He helped the defendant to the ground and had Whitmore lie on a Garda coat while they called for medical assistance. Whitmore was brought to hospital by ambulance. The local Clonroach dispensary doctor, Patrick John Daly, gave evidence next. Dr. Daly had got a phone call at about half past midnight on the 10th of November and on foot of this he headed into the village where he met with Garda Quigley. Dr. Daly was brought out to Doyle's field and was shown Marie's body. The doctor told the court that she was lying on her back with her head tilted to one side and his cursory examination revealed significant trauma to Marie's head on the left side. He had pronounced Marie dead on the scene. Then, on the 17th of November, Dr. Daly got another call and headed into Clonroach. When he arrived in the village, he found Terry Whitmore on the path outside the man's home. He had a six-inch wound running along his throat, and Dr. Daly set about providing first aid until an ambulance arrived to bring Mr. Whitmore to hospital. Dr. John Angus McLean Lee treated Terry Whitmore on his arrival at Wexford Hospital that evening. Mr. Whitmore was conscious, but had suffered a deep wound on his neck, sloping upwards from left to right, which appeared to have been made by two cuts. 
Dr. McLean Lee cleaned the wound and opened an airway below it to ensure that Mr. Whitmore could breathe. The doctor said it was his opinion that the wound was self-inflicted. He was then shown a penknife, which was similar to one he had been shown that day by a guarded detective. The wounds he had seen, again, in his opinion, could have been caused by such a blade. In response to a question from Mr. Justice Kenny, the doctor said that the defendant had been treated in hospital on foot of this incident from November 17th until December 7th. The witness said that the wounds to Mr. Whitmore's neck would have been fatal had he not received prompt medical attention. Another detective from the Garda Technical Bureau, Detective Sergeant McGonagall, described his inspection of the area behind the Whitmore's house. On November 11th, he found that there were recently snapped twigs in the hedge and pieces of straw with what appeared to be blood were caught up in other branches. The next day, he recovered five ginger-coloured hairs from the top of the hedge with a further hair with tissue attached found elsewhere on the hedge. Some of the leaves on this hedge, he noted, had bloodstains on their undersides and a circular bloodstain measuring about seven inches wide was present in the field where Marie had lay a few nights before. On the 17th of November, Detective Sergeant McGonagall had examined the Whitmore's yard and found fresh blood staining there and a trail between the front gate and the door. The day after this, he examined a garage belonging to Thomas Franklin where there was a significant amount of blood on the floor. He took a penknife into evidence which was found in a shed at the Whitmore property and identified this penknife in court. Then the court heard evidence regarding the post-mortem that had been carried out on Marie's body by assistant state pathologist Dr Raymond O'Neill. He said he had attended at the scene in Clonroach on the afternoon of the 10th of November and noted that rigor mortis was present and fully established. Given this and the temperature of Marie's body, Dr. O'Neill put the time of her death as having occurred within the previous 24 hours. Dr. O'Neill went on to say that the injuries to Marie's skull were catastrophic and had been caused by a crushing force. The pathologist said that these injuries had been inflicted by a sharply edged, slightly curved heavy weapon and the injuries had occurred in quick succession while Marie lay on or close to the ground around the time of her death. During the autopsy, Dr. O'Neill had also noted friction abrasions on Marie's neck, which he believed had been caused by Marie being dragged by her top. Pressure had been applied to Marie's neck during life as she also showed clear signs of asphyxiation. In fact, this was what Dr. O'Neill determined to be her cause of death. Marie had small circular bruises on her legs, which were likely caused by fingertip pressure. Further injuries were found on Marie's genitals. No semen stains were found during the examination. The blood found on the scene and the hedge bordering Doyle's field matched Maria's type O positive. Whitmore's defence team asked the pathologist if he could be more specific about the time of Marie's death, but Dr. O'Neill said he could do no better than his approximate of 24 hours. This episode is sponsored in part by Calm. Every day, we hear about how our morning rituals can change our day. But have you ever thought about your evening rituals? Allowing ourselves transition time to wind down both our devices and our minds in the evenings allows us to stop our racing thoughts and drift off to sleep naturally. Power your day by powering off at night. Calm is ready to help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthy life. Over a million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds, reduce stress and anxiety through guided meditations, improve focus with curated music tracks, and rest and recharge with Calm's imaginative sleep stories for children and adults. There's even new daily movement sessions designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. If you go to calm.com forward slash men's, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm's premium subscription and new content is added every week. Once again, for listeners of Men's Rea, Calm is offering an exclusive discount of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash men's. Go to calm.com slash m-e-n-s for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com 
forward slash mens. The ninth day of the trial opened with evidence from Sergeant Thomas Cantwell. Sergeant Cantwell testified that he had delivered a pair of Garda trousers to Whitmore's house on the 30th of October 1970, after being asked to do so by the defendant. When Sergeant Cantwell arrived at the house, Whitmore had commented, quote, not before time, and indicated to the trousers he had on him that day. The old trousers Whitmore was wearing had been identical to Garda trousers, and Whitmore told Sergeant Cantwell that Sergeant Flanagan had given him the pair he was wearing. According to this witness, any time he had seen Terry Whitmore, he had been dressed in these dark blue trousers, along with a green v-neck jumper and a brown sports coat. Sergeant Cantwell again spoke to the defendant on the 14th of November in the Garda station in Clonroach. Sergeant Cantwell had asked Whitmore where the clothes he was wearing on the 30th of October were, the day the sergeant had given Terry Whitmore the pair of old Garda trousers. Whitmore responded that he had burned some of those items in the back garden a few weeks before, but the green jumper could be found in a press or cupboard in the kitchen of his home. Whitmore had gone on to explain that he had cleared out the ash pit in his back garden on the 9th of November and had thrown the debris from it into the ditch at the back of his property. The green jumper and a pair of old Garda trousers were found by Detective Sergeant John Courtney. He gave evidence that he had called to the Whitmore house on the same day that Sergeant Cantwell had spoken to the defendant. Sergeant John Mulroy also spoke to Whitmore on the 14th of November and had told him that Gardy wanted to search his house. Whitmore had responded, quote, search away, anywhere you want. Later, Sergeant Mulroy had spoken again to Whitmore and said he knew that the defendant had already given a statement, but asked if Whitmore would be willing to come to the station to go over his movements on the 9th of November. Whitmore had said, certainly. During this interview, Whitmore had recounted to him that he had been in bed at about a quarter to eleven and he'd heard shouting from the back of the house. He told the sergeant he'd made a comment to his wife, quote, something awful must have happened that child. Sergeant Mulroy stopped and reminded Whitmore that he'd previously said he didn't know that Marie had been missing until the following morning. Whitmore said that Dolly must have told him about Marie being missing, but the sergeant pressed him on his previous statements that Whitmore had not known at any stage of that night that the girl was missing. Whitmore had responded, quote, Well, that's what you say. The wife did say something about a child. How else could I know? The defendant continued with his story and said that the following day Tom Kyo had come to Whitmore's house and told him that Marie Buckley had been found murdered between half eight and nine out the back. Sergeant Mulroy commented in court that at that stage in time, during this interview, he had not known what time Marie had been killed and that it was one of the things he was trying to establish at the time. Mulroy told the court that he'd asked the defendant if he'd gone out to Doyle's field that day and Whitmore had replied, who would want to see that yoke, with Mulroy telling the court that by yoke he had taken Whitmore to mean Marie's body. The court heard then from a number of expert witnesses. Mr. Brian Cullingford was a scientist who worked with the Metropolitan Police Labs in London. He had examined samples of hair taken from the hedge adjoining Doyle's field and hairs from Marie Buckley. It was his opinion from visual examination that they were a match. Dr. Garrett Fleming from the Agricultural Institute in Johnstown Castle had examined mud samples taken from Marie's shoes. He found material in the sample consistent with something that had been burned, like what might be found in a dump, and not what would normally be found in a field. Then, an ecologist from Johnstown Castle, Dr. Austin O'Sullivan, testified regarding his examination of various leaves found on Marie's body. Some of this he identified as burdock, and Dr. O'Sullivan said that burdock was very unlikely to be found growing in an open field. A leaf found in Marie's mouth matched the hedging at the back of the Whitmore house. More Gardee were then called on to give evidence. Garda Michael Flanagan said he had been stationed in Clonroach in April of 1968, and at that time he had given Whitmore a pair of blue Garda trousers. Garda Flanagan had been shown the defendant's clothes in the course of the Garda investigation into Marie's death, but he had not seen the trousers he had given to Whitmore in this collection. Garda Flanagan agreed with the defence counsel 
that two and a half years later, he would expect these trousers to be quite worn out by that time. A number of Gardaí appeared who had preserved the scene in Doyle's field and who had also dealt with evidence in the case to establish that it was properly handled. Then Sergeant John Kennedy said that he and a number of colleagues had sieved an amount of manure that was in Whitmore's yard. They were looking for parts of a jacket or buttons. They did find some buttons that could be used on an overcoat or a cardigan. In a search of the yard, no weapon was found either. Then Superintendent John Costello testified that he had arrested Terry Whitmore on the 7th of December 1970 and had charged him with Marie's murder. The state's case then concluded and the defence informed the court that they would not be calling on any evidence. Mr John Lovett Dolan Senior Counsel gave the closing statement for the prosecution. He said that, setting aside the fact that Marie had been killed in the worst possible way, the evidence presented to the jury showed that Whitmore had had murderous intent. Much of the potential evidence in Whitmore's yard had been washed away by the heavy rains on the night of the 9th and 10th of November, but vegetation from the hedge at the back of the Whitmores and mud mixed with ash found on Marie's shoes indicated that whatever had happened must have occurred in the defendant's yard. Further strengthening the case against Whitmore, the investigation had established in great detail the movements of all the people in the village that night. Whitmore's movements were the only ones that didn't line up. Certainly the defendant's behaviour after Murray's killing indicated his guilt. Not only had he become erratic, seemingly gotten rid of the clothes he was wearing that night, he had also tried to convince people he had been in the pub at the very time he was seen with Marie Buckley. Given this evidence, the prosecutor said that the jury should find Terry Whitmore guilty of the murder of Marie Buckley. Then, Kevin Lynch stood to address the jury on behalf of Terry Whitmore. Mr Lynch said that the evidence in the case against his client was, quote, entirely circumstantial, weak and highly ambiguous, end quote. None of the technical evidence, Lynch argued, indicated that Marie had been in the Whitmore's yard. In fact, the court had heard evidence that directly contradicted what the state had laid out as their case against Whitmore. The only person who could say they heard a child crying out that night had done so down near Foley's or the Spout Road, not near to Doyle's Field or the Whitmore House. A figure had been seen by Noreen Cummins in Doyle's Field at a quarter past ten or twenty past ten while she was searching for Marie by torchlight, but by that stage Whitmore was most definitely in Cullen's pub and so this could not have been his client. But Lynch suggested it may have been Marie's assailant. Furthermore, there was nothing surprising about old trousers being disposed of and not everyone in the village had been spoken to by Gardee, so the timeline was not as complete as the state would have the jury believe. It was also possible that the timeline the Gardee had put together was not entirely accurate either. Lynch pointed to the fact that the man who put Marie with his client at 9pm the night of her death had only one eye and had poor sight and he'd later failed to mention his sighting of the girl with the defendant to others in the course of the search for Marie. Finally, Whitmore's suicide attempt should not be taken as an admission of guilt. There was nothing to link the attempt to Marie. Mr Lynch told the jury that the state had failed to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt, and given this, they should return a verdict of not guilty. On Tuesday the 20th of July, Mr Justice Kenny gave his instructions to the jury, saying that they were to put aside any horror or revulsion they felt due to the nature of Marie Buckley's death. They were to be concerned only with the guilt or innocence of Terry Whitmore. The twelve men, and it was all men at that stage, were told that they should accept evidence that was more favourable to the accused unless the prosecution had presented evidence that was beyond a reasonable doubt. They were also to consider the intent that the accused might have had should they find that Marie Buckley had been in the Whitmore's house or yard on the evening of her death. They were also to take all the circumstantial evidence together in context, and the judge gave an example that Whitmore entering the pub at ten past ten meant nothing, but if this fact was taken in conjunction with other evidence presented, it was possible that this may become more significant. The jury retired that afternoon to begin their deliberations. They returned after six hours on the evening of the 20th of July, and Whitmore was found guilty of the murder of Marie Buckley.
Mr. Justice Kenny asked Whitmore if he had anything to say, to which Whitmore responded, quote, I had nothing to do with it. Terry Whitmore showed no emotion as he was handed down the mandatory life sentence and was escorted from the dock by two prison wardens. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like ad-free episodes or bonus episodes, head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. With thanks to our sponsors for this week's episode, Calm and StoryWorth. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. I'll be at CrimeCon in London in June, which is really, really soon. Please come and see me. Use the code MENSREA for a lovely discount on your tickets. They're available at crimecon.co.uk. I'll also be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas, Texas on the 24th to 27th of August. Visit truecrimepodcastfestival.com to grab your tickets. Our theme music is Quinn Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin McLeod. Additional music is by Winita Meisel and Kevin McLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. (laughs) 